Howdy, welcome back to another episode of our weekly podcast. We know you've got a buffet of media to choose from each week. That's why we put a lot of effort into finding stories from the Bible that have relevant lessons for us today. I hope you enjoy. Good morning. I've had a few uh, weeks where I traveled to other little churches and all I can say is, uh, based on the football and, I'm sorry, the basketball story this morning, I was thinking, it's like, wow, we've got like, we're like the Warriors, meet the Prime Bulls, meet the Patriots here. I mean, we, we've got a special thing. So I just want to say thank you for the privilege to worship with this church each and every week. I got to tell you a story of gratitude. Um, Wednesday night, Annette and I, we think we were about to lock the doors and she was asking, have you seen Georgia? Our little cat, Georgia, thinks she's a dog. Seen Georgia? No, I haven't seen her. Oh, that's interesting. I haven't seen her in a while. And uh, so she goes out to open her car. And she comes back in. She goes, hey, do you have the keys to my car? And we're looking around. I said, I have no idea where the keys are. Well, then she goes back out and she turns the garage light on. And she sees our cat, Georgia, in the car. I'm like, where are your keys? It shouldn't lock. She said, they're right there. Well, how did the cat lock the... Well, it pressed the manual lock and the cat is now locked in the vehicle with the only set of keys. And I'm thinking to myself, this is awkward. But hey, go with the flow. Life throws you lemons, make lemonade. So I'm thinking to myself, okay. Well, this is bad. Tomorrow's Thanksgiving, not like there's going to be any help tomorrow. And then Annette says, well, and there's some things in the car I need for Thanksgiving. Oh, as if the cat wasn't enough, right? So I'm like, can the cat, how long can the cat survive in the car? And that's like, well, there's no food, no place to go to the bathroom. Okay, yeah, good points, good points. So now I'm thinking, okay, now we're going to break a window. So I'm thinking side window. But then I'm like, you know, side window's like, how do we know that's cheaper? So I start Googling. <laughs> Cost to replace... Prius side window. And there were some estimates of like $800. And I said, $800? I'm jumping through the windshield. Because that's $300. And then I kind of came to my senses for a minute and thought, okay, hold on. Think. We prayed. And then it came to my mind, my friend Chris. And I called Chris and said, Chris, I got a problem. I don't know how to fix this problem. You got any ideas? My cat is locked in my car, and the keys are in the car. And Chris was so gracious. This is Wednesday night. He says, well, you know, I'm, I'm heading out of town for Thanksgiving. I'll be back tomorrow night. I'm happy to help you tomorrow night. But in the meantime, if you want, I'll tell you how to get to my house. I'll show you the tools you need. I'll walk you through how to unlock your car. And I'll... And I'm like, wow, that's so nice. Thinking to myself, I'll never figure this out. I hope we can survive Thanksgiving and get Georgia out another day. She's well fed. She'll be fine. But the next morning, I punched in the GPS, went to Chris's house, called him. Chris was so gracious, walked me through. Here's exactly the tools you need to pull out of the toolbox. And I went home. Chris takes time away from his family to walk me through. Here's what you do. And I mean, there's amazing things. I didn't know you could do all this, this little pump type system you put in the door and the door opens up and then this device that seems like it'd be easy. But for me, I'm like, Annette, I still don't think this is going to work. <laughs> I just, you got to be a ninja to make this happen. And I'm like, is this this easy? Can you just break into cars like this? 
finally it opens up. I called Chris celebrating. And so Chris, I just want to say thank you. That was very nice of you. And uh, hallelujah, didn't have to jump through my own windshield. That was a, a huge blessing. So yeah, definitely wanted to share that, that gratitude. Okay, two quick things. Our Bethlehem Live, there is a ton of work going into it with everyone planning it, all the set building, all the costumes, all the design. Rick and Judy, thank you so much. Couldn't say thank you more. But in the next week, we need to start telling our friends, family, neighbors, this is gonna be a huge event down in the grass over here, right? So a lot of people are gonna come on the property. I'm hoping everybody can come those nights. Even if you're not actively involved, you could be greeting. Uh, there's a lot of different activities we're gonna need help with, but it's December 17 and 18, 6 to 9 p.m., and we're gonna be advertising on social media and a whole bunch of different places, and I know it's gonna be a huge blessing, so thank you for putting the time in. It means, means a lot. And then the last thing is our social next Saturday night at our house at five o'clock. So I hope you can join us for that. Okay, so yesterday we started this 40 days of prayer. How many of you got your book already? All right, good. And if you haven't got your book, we can send another link out. It's nine, I think 9.99 on Amazon. It'll be at your house before you know it. And it's 40 days of praying with someone and praying specifically for five people in your life. Yesterday was day one, so you're not too late. Even before you get the book, find someone you can start praying with. And it's very specific prayers of just asking the Lord to do things in your life and that person's life that you're praying with and specifically in those five people's lives that you're praying for. And, and there's even a challenge, let those five people know that you're praying for them. And, and the context is prayers and devotions to prepare for the second coming. And it gets into this idea of the Holy Spirit and why we need the Holy Spirit. And uh, here's why we're doing this. It is very easy in this time of delay that we live in to get caught up in the world we live in and just think, well, I don't know about Jesus, but I got a life to live and whatever. Or my burdens in this life become so much that, you know, I don't even know where Jesus is, what he's doing. And it's important, sometimes we take deliberate time. I would assume most of us pray every day. But this is kind of a different way to go about it, to pray specifically to see the Lord do something in your life, in your friend's life that you're praying with, and in those individuals that you're praying for. The amount of testimonies I've heard after people in churches go through this is phenomenal. So I just wanna encourage you to get that. One of the things that I am inspired by is there's all this talk about the second coming and a lot of times we, and even me, dwell on the signs of the second coming. Okay, these are the signs. This is what we're looking for, just like we were driving on a road and we see speed limit signs and crosswalk signs and stop signs and we just think, well, look for the signs and you'll know exactly when the second coming will happen or at least close. And I think there's some rationale to that. But for me, I wanna share with you a few reasons why I think by and large we've missed the boat on what we're looking for. So I'm gonna share with you my rationale pretty quickly. The summary of it is the Bible, I know made a lot more sense to people that planted seeds and grew some food. 
you haven't had that experience, I would just encourage you, go to the local hardware store, buy a pot, buy some soil and buy some seeds, order them online, put the seeds in the pot, water them, put it near a window, and you will begin to see things, and I think understand things in this book that you'll never have understood before. Because it teaches you things that you, this world can't automate growing. Can't replace the patience that you learn in growing. There's all these things you learn. So I have a belief that this entire book teaches about a principle of a harvest. And when the harvest is ripe, it's all over. It's not looking at the bad guys. It's not wondering if Jesus went on vacation. It really is this this interesting story about when the harvest is finally ripe. We have Revelation 14, 15 in, in some of the hardcore elements of Scripture. When the harvest is ripe, the sickle is put in, and then the next few verses. It's all over, the end of the story. As if to say, all the universe is watching a garden called Earth, and as soon as the fruit turns from green tomatoes to red tomatoes, they know, ah, the story's over. And now this is a painful story. A lot of people died on the way to the end of this story. A lot of people got sick. A lot of homes got wrecked. A lot of discouragement. But to those looking on, their cue that the story is over, according to Scripture, is the harvest is ripe. Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7, there's this call to give God glory in a special moment of time. Jesus doesn't leave us in the dark on this idea. He says, bearing fruit is the point of the story. And by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. That fruit being the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. There's a book that talks about this probably clearer than I've ever seen it. It's called Christ's Object Lessons about the parables of Jesus. I just want to read you a few few thoughts. So just again, why I believe everything on this planet leads to the garden is ripe. And what does that really mean? And here we go. There can be no growth or fruitfulness in the life that is centered in self. How many of you know a selfish person? Maybe even that person in the mirror could be sometimes selfish, yeah? If you have accepted Christ as a personal savior, you are to forget yourself. Try to help others. Talk of the love of Christ, tell of his goodness. Do every duty that presents itself. Carry the burden of souls upon your heart and by every means in your power, Seek to save the lost. As you receive the spirit of Christ, the spirit of unselfish love and labor for others, you will grow and bring forth fruit. So guarantee, there's a formula there. If you want to see, if you've got impatience issues, I can tell you the, the healing to not be impatient is not to every day say, I gotta be more patient. I gotta be, I gotta, whatever that thing in your life you want to see bettered, the the solution to it is not thinking on it and trying to just do it better. According to this, it's go bless other people. The graces of the Spirit will ripen in your character. Your faith will increase. Your convictions will deepen. Your love 
will be made perfect. More and more, you will reflect the likeness of Christ in all that is pure, noble, and lovely. It goes on. When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle because the harvest is coming. This is talking about Jesus and this harvest idea. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. I could stop now because that is what we're talking about today. Christ is waiting. A lot of us are under the thought, we are waiting. But I would tell you, I think, I think Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. In other words, when the harvest is ripe, that's his cue. But the harvest is this, this growth of fruit in our own lives. It is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're all who profess his name, bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. Quickly the last great harvest would be ripened and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. So the world doesn't need more sermons. The world doesn't need more food drives. The world doesn't need more mission trips. The world doesn't need more news coming out of Rome. But according to this idea, Jesus is patiently waiting for that call of, he said, hey, the work I've started in you, I'll bring it to completion, but you gotta be willing. Gotta be willing. And, and so that's the hard part, is that willingness. And so, so we gotta take a litmus test because if Jesus has not returned, and, and this idea of he's the one waiting, well, then it's like, well, then what's the holdup? Another thought, I've quoted this before, but I'm obsessed with it, so please forgive me. Many take it for granted that they are Christians simply because they subscribe to certain theological tenets. So I would tell you that I believe today of all the Ten Commandments that many cultures and what, nearly two and a half, three billion people on earth claim to be a Christian, I think the number one most broken commandment is the third. And a lot of Christians have taken this one as, well, don't say the Lord's name is a curse word. And so we thought, okay, as long as I stay away from that, I'm good. I, I don't think it's that. I think it's this idea of many take it for granted that they are Christians simply because they subscribe to certain theological tenets. People say they're a Christian because, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Yes. Therefore, I'm a Christian. I'm saved because I believe things. Then it goes on. But they have not brought the truth into practical life. They have not believed and loved it. That's a real heartfelt question. Do you love the truth? You know, the truth, the truth isn't often ushy-gushy and, ah, oh, I'm doing everything right. The truth just makes me feel so warm and fuzzy. Sometimes the truth literally gets in the pit of your stomach and you think, oh, I wish I'd never heard that message. 
I wish my friend had never reached out to me. I wish today did not happen because I didn't want to know that truth. But, but they've not believed it and loved it. Therefore, they have not received the power and grace that come through sanctification of the truth. That, that just believing something doesn't really matter. And in the previous uh, section, this is from a book called Desire of Ages, it talks about that this was the great sin in Jesus' day. That people just thought they, they thought right, so therefore they must be right. And that made them kill an innocent person in the worst excruciating possible torture they could think up. And that later some would realize this was the one that created the earth. But their thinking right led them to kill someone and ultimately kill people, and, and it was terrible. And lately, I've, I've just, I keep wrestling on this idea. Why don't we see more of our young people stick around as soon as they get out of mom and dad's house? Why do they not come back to church? Why do they not want anything to do with this? And I have come to the conclusion, without a shadow of a doubt, it is because we cursed them. And they don't like the curse that we put on them. And they don't like the idea that we ourselves are cursed. So they're like, those people are cursed, and they cursed me. And the last place I ever want to end up is near Christian professing people. And I build that on this idea. Men may profess, men and women may profess faith in the truth, but if it, the truth, does not make them sincere and kind and patient and forbearing and heavenly-minded, it is a curse to its possessors. And through their influence, it is a curse to the world. I think the woes of the earth today lie, that sin lies at the feet of the Christian community. I don't think it lies at the feet of Muslims or Buddhists or others because somehow the Christians said, we have a higher calling we trace our roots back to this. We believe all these things which, which profess, I would say, more than any other faith group. And so I think people expect more of Christians. Why not? I mean, you profess not only to where the story begins and that God could just speak and things happen, like no process in this. Like in secular terms, you believe in the most magical version of life that could possibly exist. And yet I came around you and I sat in those Sabbath schools and those Sunday schools and I sat in Pathfinders and maybe Boy Scouts and whatever the context and you yelled at me. With a Bible in your hand, you yelled at me. And I heard what you said to mom and I heard what you said to dad. I heard how you spoke to those people that worked for you. And I heard how you talked to your relatives. And I saw how you acted at Thanksgiving. I saw how you held grudges. And you talked about a God that was so loving and forgiving, but you don't forgive. You're angry. And you've held it on your whole life. And I think I gotta prepare Ava to plan for retirement. Unless the Christian community wakes up to realize we've missed something. I mean, we, we're just off. 
And, and for me, the, the thing that I am so passionate about right now is, you know, that definition of insanity, keep doing the same things and expecting different results, that's insanity. Like, you've lost your mind. And so, if you don't see the results that you want, we owe it to ourselves, we owe it to our friends, to our families, we got to change it up. I can tell you as a pastor, um, I just have growing empathy for pastors. Because you don't realize the amount of burdens that everyone carries. And, and ignorance is bliss. Because you hear all these burdens, and, and I would tell you, I'm just sharing my heart for a minute. I've had to really question in recent months, I don't know if, I don't think I'm making any difference in the lives of these dear members that I worship with. Because I hear things that are happening, and I'm like, but, but what? You did what? You're still angry at what? You never forgave, like, we're called to forgive. Like, things that I thought we dealt with in kindergarten, we struggle with. And I, I'm so burdened with, with those practical things. Our kids need to know that they're the most loved individuals on the earth, parents. I don't care what lifestyle they practice, what sins they are actively enjoying, they need to know we love them. Because as Christians, we believe some very insane things. We think there are some practices that if you don't go through the spirit of repentance, you won't be my neighbor in paradise. And in light of that, this may be the only paradise we ever experience together. So I gotta make it count for you. Think about that, because my beliefs say, God willing, I make it, but based on all that I know in your life, you're not gonna make it. And to think that sometimes we shun those people. And we say, well, you have some sins in your life that are preventing me from loving you properly and you gotta get right. And we say, here, here's the thing, we teach people in reality what theoretically we talk about in this book. We talk about a God that loves you unconditionally, but we don't. We talk about a God that he died for us while we were still doing nasty things. Yet we say, Ernest, clean up your act. Come talk to me. Next week, I've asked Annette to join me to do a sermon on the idea of, it's fascinating what we ask people to do before they join us. But my question is, do I need to become the police to the rest of us? to say, you made a vow, and now I have to police you? Or do I just get into the, you're out of the church, you're out of the church, you're out of the church? I, I, I'm desperate to have some real conversations about this because I do think we have something special here. We have a lot of us, I would say all of us are here. We love Jesus no matter what it costs. I mean that very sincerely. We love Jesus no matter what it costs us in this world. 
And so in light of this book, I wanna just encourage you, let's see what God will do with us. If we just pray with somebody, just take a couple of minutes. Hey, I know you're busy. I'm gonna pray with you. It's me, day two. We're gonna pray together. And, and the book gives some good ideas of things to pray about. And the context is that before the second coming, there's gonna be this thing that happens. And it, it describes in these terms of the early and the latter rain. If you wanna turn with me in your Bibles right quick. I just wanna show you this concept because I think it's important that we realize it. Sometimes I think we're lost in the theological clouds and our friends and neighbors and brothers and sisters, they're just desperate to know what does, what does this religion that you believe and you profess, and I think you spend a lot of time reading the same book, I want to know, and I think everyone around us wants to know, does it really make your life better? Or is it really the greatest waste of time you could be doing? I think there's a potential for both. Because that statement I keep harping on, we profess, faith, we profess faith in the truth, but if this is not making us the most amazing husbands that any wife would brag about to all of our friends, that book is a waste of time. Really. If this is not making us love our parents more, love our kids more, love our coworkers more. Jesus is a radical. He's not, love people you love a little more, love people you hate. Oh, but I hate them. Yeah. <laughs> Check out real religion when you have to love someone that has wronged you, that has broken a covenant with you. You wanna understand forgiveness? You will really understand forgiveness when you have to forgive someone or you have to go ask for forgiveness from someone. And so James, James begins to build on this idea of this principle that I think gets in line with the harvest thing. James 5, 7. James chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, be patient. And boy, we need patience. The problem is the biblical definition of getting patience is you have to go through trials. It's like, I want big thighs. Well, you gotta do squats. And those are painful. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Once you look through this lens of the harvest, it's everywhere. Waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Then it gets into some practical things. Do not grumble against one another, lest you be condemned. It's really some powerful ideas. But on this idea of the early and latter rain, this was, you put the seeds in the ground, you need a light rain to water the soil so that the seeds can come through. What you don't want to happen is if you've ever seen this, if you plant a seed and then a heavy rainstorm comes and there's a river and all your seeds are down in the ditch. You can see that a lot with grass plant all this grass seed and a rain comes and it washes it all in the ditch. You need a soft rain. In your own walk, you do not need the blazing, convicting power of the Spirit in every single aspect of your life or you will be so discouraged and overcome that you'll likely say, church is just not for me. I can't handle it. And that's where us, we, we live and demonstrate some of these practical elements of religion in our friends' lives. 
we may see 10 things that are just way off course and they're gonna lead them to trouble. The lesson we, we learn here is be gentle, start slow. There's ways to go about this, but you don't want to turn the fire hose onto this little soft bed of soil that has a seed. That seed will bounce in the air and it's gone. So the early rain is a very powerful idea that you need it to germinate, you need the roots to start going down, you need the seed to burst through and you have the blade coming through. And then as it begins to mature, it can withstand more rain. That latter rain, the the rain showers. Here's a few practical ideas. In the east, the former rain falls at the sowing time. It is necessary in order that the seed may germinate. Under the influence of the fertilizing showers, the tender shoot springs up. The latter rain, falling near the close of the season, ripens the grain and prepares it for the sickle. The Lord employs these operations of nature to represent the work of the Holy Spirit. That it's a process. That, that the rains can't be reversed. Lord, give me the latter rain. Lord's saying, whoa, there's some things that haven't even germinated. If I send the latter rain now, you're in trouble. You'll be discouraged. Goes on. There must be no neglect of the grace represented by the former rain. Only those who are living up to the light they have. So now it gets practical. That the Holy Spirit brings this light into our lives. It's almost like a spotlight. It shines on some things. Hey, you've been cheating your boss. You say you're on time, but you're really 15 minutes late every day. Ah, oh, yeah, that's, that's something I can do. It doesn't take too much. Might mean I have to wake up early or do my thing, but yeah, I guess it's cheating my boss. Man, Blech. But it's easier than, hey, you robbed me in $86,000 in tithe in the last 22 years of your life, and you need to make it right. Oh, I'm not ready for that. Let me just show up to work a little earlier. So it's, it's this light that shines on things. And then if you only if you receive that, do you get more light. Unless we are daily advancing in the exemplification of the active Christian virtues. So as long as there's growth, we're okay. Growth is best measured not by you, but by those around you. And we need to do more where as brothers and sisters of faith, to be able to go to each other and just to ask, are you more loving than six months ago? Are you more patient with your family, et cetera, et cetera? Unless we are daily advancing, we shall not recognize the manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the latter rain. It may be falling on hearts all around us, but we shall not discern or receive it. You don't want that to happen. Where these, these rows are experiencing, man, my, my marriage is better, work is better, satisfaction's better, joy and the other half of us are like, what? How's that happening to you? Why isn't it happening to me? We don't want some people to get something that we have just as easy access to get if all it takes is a prayer. Lord, work in my life today. Don't give up on me. And the answer is, of course, he hasn't given up on us. We give up on the Lord. We get angry at him. Why aren't you working as fast as I want you to work? Why'd you take me down this route? Why are you wasting my time? I think it's important that we know how close Jesus is to us 
This is from a quote called uh, Manuscript Releases, number 14, page 23. This is heavy. Cumbered with humanity, Christ could not be in every place personally. Therefore, it was altogether for their advantage, talking about the disciples, that he should leave them, go to his Father, and send the Holy Spirit to be his successor on earth. The Holy Spirit is himself divested of the personality of humanity and independent thereof. He would represent himself as present in all places by his Holy Spirit, as the omnipresent. But the Comforter, comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said to you. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will come not unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. To know that you have a friend walking with you every single day that is not rooting against you, but that is rooting for you. This is probably the great misunderstanding of the Christ of Christianity. The bad guy, he's out to take no prisoners, and good luck, because you've got to pull yourself up and get a lot of things right to be accepted by him. And so therefore, we, we translate that understanding of God to our relationships. Well, they haven't said they're sorry. The Bible actually doesn't teach that. It says, if you, if you know somebody has issue with you, go to them. Try and make it right. Doesn't mean it will be made right. Just clearing up things. This idea that we just read about was the disciples' issue. They're together. And Jesus tells them, I'm going to send the comforter. And these disciples were the ones that were competing, who's going to be the best? Who's going to be the greatest? Who's the smartest of all of us? You would think they were kindergartners, just competing on the most silly, ridiculous themes. But somehow, they began to experience that idea of the early reign. You know what? Who cares who's the greatest? Like, if we make it, we're good, right? Yeah, 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 we're good. And so they heal all those divisions. The Spirit is poured out. We're told they turned the world upside down. We're told those same promises. We're told that wasn't even a glimpse of what God is going to do with a generation of people just before his return. But the problem is we've got to clear up some things. And so when we start to see the Spirit fall, we will see some very uncomfortable things happen. Every, every uh, testimony of the falling of the Spirit on record comes with apologies, usually tears, there's forgiveness, hate disappears, resentment and anger fade away, anger and pain held onto for years is given up, and in place of all these things, peace reigns. So if there's things in there that we can do, this is going to sound a little heretical, stop praying about it. Don't pray for somebody to be okay if you've wronged them. Text them, call them, go see them today. Really, don't wait till tomorrow. I remember when I finally started to open my eyes to some of these things a few years ago, I had to reach out to people from elementary school that I had wronged. 
And I had later realized that for 25 years, their life had been wrecked because of damage I had done to them. A word I said, an expression I did. And I'm convinced when the spirit begins to fall, we begin to say, I need to make some wrongs right. Sometimes it's financial wrongs. Sometimes it's just an apology. Sometimes it's, hey, I broke something of yours. I never told you about. I wanna make it right. I wanna say I'm sorry. Wrongs are made right. Healing happens. And when that happens, nothing is held back from what God will do in our lives. If you're chasing that that idea of joy and happiness and peace and wondering, Lord, where is it? It may be as clear as, is there anybody in my life I've wronged that I need to forgive or ask for forgiveness from? I want healing, I want peace with the Lord. And he said, if I don't forgive people, he can't forgive me. Why would he make this so difficult? I think as we go through this, if we all commit to praying with someone and just claiming all the promises we possibly can, Lord, what you started, please don't quit until you're done. Encourage each other. Encourage those around us who they might have given up on God because of things we said or did to them that we right now can make right. I think the greatest uh, medicine for any Christian home that has some brokenness and some pain and some sickness and some heartache, I'll talk to parents first. Go find your kids, I don't care how old they are, and tell them you're sorry. If there's anything in your life you say, I wish this had been done better, just go say I'm sorry. It'll be the hardest thing you ever do. It'll be the most healing thing you'll ever do for you and them. If it's to parents, I can tell you it's a hard thing if if parents are sleeping in the grave. You gotta take that one to the Lord and just ask for, hey, I need peace, I need forgiveness. You're the one that forgives. I wanted to make this right, but they're not alive anymore to make it right. You gotta give me some peace. I don't wanna carry this around. You know, we struggle a lot with this idea of, I'm gonna forgive, but I'm not gonna forget. But I can tell you, and I pray, Lord, you need to forgive me for this, and I don't know how you do it, but you need to forget it too. And I want your help for me to forget it because it is a burden to carry around wrongs you've committed and done. And if you've asked the Lord to forgive you for those things, plead with him to help you forget it because he says, I take sins, I throw them in the bottom of the sea, they're done. If I can do that, the God that knows everything, you can do it too. Let it go. It's not gonna help anybody by holding on to these burdens we drag through life. To parents that wronged us, friends that wronged us, kids that wronged us, employers that wronged us, whoever it may be, pastors, teachers. Just plead with the Lord to work in your life to give you that peace. And sometimes it does require a few steps to get it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is the hardest thing about this walk in the Christian life, that it calls us to actually do some things where if we recognize we're not patient, it calls us to be more patient. If we're not loving, it calls us to be more loving. Give us the love that you have for us. Give give us that same type of love for those around us. If there's any wrongs we have done or wrongs we need to forgive, please send your spirit into this church, into this community, into each home, so that, Lord, as we look ahead and we go through this experience of prayer, we start a new year, I just wanna pray that you will bring testimonies into families, into marriages, into the lives of kids and grandchildren and grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and all in between. 
even friends. Please, Lord, do something for us that we cannot take credit for, that we can only thank your spirit for doing in such a broken world and that people around us will finally and eventually have the evidence that they've been looking for, that this faith we profess can change a life. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. We record these messages each week at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Adairsville. And if you're ever in the area, we'd love to see you. Stop in and say hi and enjoy some good Southern food with us. We'll see you next week.